You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. Good to see you. Glad you're with us here. If uh, you're new here to Northway, I want to welcome you. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here. Grateful you are with us. We are starting a brand new sermon series today, y'all. Genesis. Y'all ready? Genesis. This is an amazing series. By the way, this will be the easiest thing to do. When I say turn with me to Genesis, if you're not familiar with the Bible, just go to page one. It's right there. So this will be the easiest turn ever. Page one there in the Bible. Uh, We're looking at Genesis, this amazing book, 50 chapters, 1,533 verses. It's going to be the best 28 years of our lives together going through this thing. No, Lord willing, we'll, we'll uh, work through this book in about two years. We'll take some breaks uh, along the way and hit some other little mini series here and there. But, uh, but man, we're going to dive in. And what you're going to find in Genesis, this is not just the beginning of your Bible. Uh, this is the beginning of everything. And uh, the question I have, I think that I had to wrestle through is why this book? You know, here at Northway, if you're new to Northway, we love teaching the Bible. We love going book by book verse by verse. We kind of rotate between Old Testament, New Testament. God willing, if the Lord gave us enough time, we'd hit all 66 books. It'd be fantastic. But in doing so, get the freedom to kind of pick where we want to go. But why this one? And uh, not just because it is a significant book and it's at the front of the Bible. And um, I think really in many ways, it's because of this cultural moment that we're in. And uh, with so much confusion in the world right now, uh, and so much confusion in the church right now, uh, whether it's uh, a lot of deconstruction of faith that's going on, dismantling of really uh, things that we've held to and believed upon, and the confusion to can we trust this anymore? Can we believe this anymore? And uh, many of the questions that just revolve around the foundations of our faith. What does it mean to be human? Like, what does it mean to be male and female? Uh, questions around human sexuality, questions around um, the dignity of human life, not just in the womb, but all the way to the tomb. Every human being made in the image of God, the dignity of God in every man and woman that has been created. Questions around race, ethnicity, identity, uh, questions about the, the origin of the cosmos and how did civilizations uh, come to be as we know them? Uh, questions about God himself. Who is God? Is there such thing as God? Um, why is there something rather than nothing in this world? And how did it come to be? And why does the world appear to be so broken as it has? Why, why does the world seem so heading in towards chaos rather than order, it feels like? Um, What about the problem of evil? Where did evil come from? Um, Where's the ultimate end of this thing? Where are we heading as a culture? Is there hope of redemption? All these questions and more, the book of Genesis is going to speak to. That's what I love about Genesis. It's going to take us back to the origin of things, lay down those foundations and help us understand why they came to be. Why is everything as broken as it is and how will everything ultimately be restored? And ultimately what Genesis is going to do, it's going to give us um, really the storyline for the rest of scripture. 
So everything that you're going to read in Genesis is setting us up for everything else that we'll see uh, in the storyline of the Bible, from the themes of creation to fall to, um, uh, to redemption and ultimate restoration of all things. That's just not the storyline of the Bible. That, that, those foundations are laid in the storyline of Genesis that will lead us toward that. And we're going to see the arc of the gospel, the God who not only creates, but the God who recreates. The God who, who longs to redeem what has been broken. The, the God from the very beginning who had a plan to bring about a Messiah who would bring about the restoration of all things. And we're going to see that laid out in Genesis. And so for all those reasons, I think now is as good a time as any to go back to the beginning, to go to the ancient paths and to be reminded of who God is, who we are and what he's up to so that we can fix our eyes on him. You know, before we uh, dive in here, we're going to look at just one verse this week. Just one. Arguably, though, maybe one of the most important ones in Genesis 1-1. But what I'd love to do right at the beginning of this series is just quickly frame out for us how the book of Genesis is laid out. Because I think it's very important that we not only know what we're reading, but we know how to actually read it. How to approach uh, this particular book. And so I want to lay out for us a little bit of the background and the structure of Genesis that I think is going to set us up to win uh, for the next uh, weeks on end that we'll cover this. But when you think about the background of Genesis, certainly we got to begin with the title, Genesis. Now, contrary to popular belief, it's not Phil Collins in an amazing uh, 80s rock band. Uh, it's not maybe arguably one of the best game consoles to come out of the 90s. Uh, this is uh, a Greek word that means beginnings. Uh, it means beginnings. Uh, it means an origin story. Uh, for example, the root word of genealogy is Genesis. And when you trace a genealogy, you're tracing an origin story. Um, when you go to Matthew 1 uh, in the New Testament, just as the Old Testament will start with creation and the beginning and the origin of the cosmos, when you get to Matthew 1, it starts with a genealogy. And it's showing you the Genesis, the origin of how the Messiah came. Um, And so Genesis is all around us. My mom, by the way, has been a professional genealogist, retired now, but she's written a couple of books. She has given her life to working through the origin of families and helping others do the same and, and kind of where we come from. But even her best work only goes back so far. Genesis, the book, is going to take us back to the beginning of the cosmos. Um, and so Genesis is, is huge. And even, by the way, even that theme of Genesis will get played throughout the scriptures. When you get to John's account uh, in uh, the New Testament, John's gospel is really a mirror of the book of Genesis, except instead of looking at creation of old, it's going to look at new creation. That's why it begins, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He starts with in the beginning, and he's going to trace our new creation origin through Jesus Christ. And so Genesis is all over the place. The dating of this book, it's about 3,500 years old. Get your head around that for just a moment. Think about all the popular books that are so crazy and awesome to read right now, and how many of them that were popular just a few years ago, and you can't even remember what they are anymore. Books come and go, and this one was written 3,500 years ago. It was penned. And yet it brings us into the story as if it was written today. Um, 3,500 years ago, it's going to cover 
um, uh, aside from the creation story and the origin and the, uh, and the time spans that we'll look at there, the history of the book covers about 2,000 years. That's as much years as the rest of the Bible um, is what's covered in this book. It's a lot of years that are covered here, uh, but it's written about 3,500 years ago, about 1,500 years before Jesus. Um, the author of this book, now this has been highly debated, um, there is a many popular opinions, especially in uh, many liberal scholars that would love to argue that Moses did not write this book. And um, there's been a lot of work done there. And what's interesting, that's just a relatively new argument. It's only in the last couple hundred years. Uh, for the millennia prior, uh, Moses has always been held as the author. And I myself am in that camp. Uh, I believe that Moses is the one whom God used to pen this book for a number of reasons. One, um, it's not just Genesis. Understand that this is part of a five-volume set that's all cohesive, known as the Pentateuch, means five books. The first five books of the Bible are viewed as one unit. Um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's all viewed as one unit. And any time it is referred to in the scriptures, oftentimes it is referred to as the book of Moses. One book, it's just Moses. Uh, to the Jews, it's the Torah, um, it's where the law is contained, the law of Moses. It's referring to all five books. But within that canon of scripture, within those five books in Exodus, we are told over and over again, such as Exodus 17, Exodus 24, where God commands Moses to write down these words because I want to give you a record to give to the people. And we're told Moses is the one who writes these. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus happened to believe that Moses wrote this. So unless Jesus is a liar, uh, he, is, uh, he is quoting Moses as the author. In Mark chapter 12, he will say, have you not read the book of Moses? Referring to the first five books. Um, when John 7, verse 19, has Moses not given you the law? That's referred to as the first five books of scripture and Jesus is attributing its authorship. Even in Matthew 19, when Jesus and the disciples are having a discourse about marriage and divorce, both Jesus and the disciples recognize these are Moses's words. So Jesus attributes, as well as, his, as, well as the New Testament, New Testament authors attribute this work uh, to Moses being the author. And I think that's important because Moses was the best suited to understand the context that this work was written. And so when you think about the audience of the book of Genesis, you think about the aim of Genesis, why was it written? We've got to go back 3,500 years. You need to take yourself out of the 21st century right now and all of our modern debates about Genesis, and you need to go back 3,500 years ago and ask yourself, why was this being written? To whom was it being written in the day that it was written? And there we find our context for what brings so much relevancy to, to the structure of Genesis and its content. Moses is writing this uh, to a group of about 4 million Hebrew slaves who were just delivered from bondage in Egypt. This takes place after the Exodus. They are now in the wilderness journey and they are heading towards a new land that they don't know anything about, but is truly going to be another land not too different than Egypt in Canaan. They're caught between these two, these two provinces, so to speak, when this is written. 
And what you have with these 4 million Hebrew slaves is they have just spent the last 400 plus years in bondage in Egypt, where generation after generation of these Hebrew slaves were indoctrinated into the Egyptian theology, where they were taught about the Egyptian gods. They were given different narratives and origin stories of how the world came to be as they knew it. And the, the, the icons and the drawings of this theology was everywhere in Egypt. You couldn't go anywhere without this catechizing you and indoctrinating you into an understanding that there is a pantheon of gods and the world as we know it is simply made from emanations of those gods, including one particular God who incarnated into human flesh and went and sat on a throne by the name of Pharaoh. And so that's important to understand. They're coming out of that, that worldview. And they're heading into a land of Canaan where they're going to experience another pantheon of gods with all kinds of origin stories and all kinds of practices attributed to those gods. And they're going to be tempted to adopt those practices and adopt those beliefs. And so it is out of the kindness of God that he has Moses sit down in the wilderness, says, write down what I'm going to command you, because I want to set the record straight for my people as to who I am, who delivered them, and to how things came to be so that they can know where things are going. God in his kindness does this. He's going to give them um, the understanding of who God is, how things came in existence, why things are broken, his plan for the ages to use them as a chosen people to bring about the Messiah in whom all the nations will be blessed in Jesus Christ. And so over and over, by the way, in the book of Exodus, over and over again, God tells Pharaoh, the reason you're to let my people go is not just so they can be free for any reason at all. Over and over, he says, let my people go so they will be free to worship me, the true and the living God. God delivers his people so they can worship him, so they can know him and be known by him. That is the aim of Genesis, that we would rightly see God for who he is as creator and as savior, and that we would take the posture of humility and worship him and ascribe worth to him for who he is and what he has done. That's what Genesis is seeking to do. Now, there is a structure to Genesis that we need to understand how this thing's put together. Truth be known, if you've been around church for any time, or maybe if you're not even familiar with church, you probably have an understanding of Genesis based on stories made either popularized by flannel graphs, Sunday school classrooms, or made popular by VeggieTales, or made popular by the rest of Hollywood. You've heard stories. We know stories of Adam and Eve being naked and unashamed in the garden and covering up. We, we know about the serpent and we know about Noah and the flood. And, and we know about Joseph and his technicolor dream coat. Uh, we, we know these stories. And if we're not careful, we tend to view the book of Genesis as this collection of just stories, of feel-good stories and hero stories and horrible stories. And it's just stories. But there's actually a real structure to Genesis. It wasn't written randomly. There is an order that is here. 
And what I wanna do is I wanna show you just real quick three unique ways that you can see Genesis as it is structured. One of those ways, it's a big word here, it's known as the Toledah framework of Genesis. Can you say that word with me? Toledah. That's fun to say, isn't it? Francisco. Um, <laughs> Toledah. It means generations. Generations. And you're going to see this word generations has the same root as Genesis or genealogy. Generations all throughout Genesis. And there's an order to it. So you see it on the screen here. Chapter two, verse four will say this is essentially the generations of how the heavens and earth were made, the generations of creation. Then you'll get to chapter five, verse one, the generations of Adam. And then you get to six, nine, generations of Noah. And then you get to 10, one, the generations of the sons of Noah. Then 11, 10, the generations of Shem. Then 11, 27, the generations of Terah, which Terah is actually the father of Abraham which is really where we pick up the story there. And then 25.12, the generations of Ishmael. It's only a few verses before you get to 25.19, the generations of Isaac. And then you get to 36.1, the generations of Esau, before you get to 37.2, that closes out the book, generations of Jacob, and really Jacob's sons that are a part of that. And so this is the Toledah, the generations. There's a structure to this. And what's interesting is of these 10 markers that are markers throughout Genesis, five of them are followed by narratives and five of them are followed by genealogies. There is an order here. There is a structure here. These Toledah sections are chosen and recorded for a specific purpose. This isn't just a bunch of stories. This isn't just names and biographies that are randomly placed there. These carefully map out for God's people the chosen line and the pathway that God has made by which his Redeemer will come for them. And it traces through these generation stories, both in the genealogy, genealogical record, as well as in the narrative of what is being highlighted in that story. It's all pointing to the Messiah who will come. So that's one way to view Genesis is it's very structured, Toledah structure. There's another way that you're going to see Genesis as well. And that's not necessarily just um, the generations, but it is the geography. There is a geography at play in Genesis. For instance, Genesis chapters 1 through 11, it's all going to take place in one region. It's all going to take place in what was known as Babylonia or Babylon. Uh, we would also call it Mesopotamia. Every part of 1 through 11 is going to center in around that land right there. Um, chapters 12 through 36, it's as if the scene will pan over and will be in what was known as today Israel, but Palestine or uh, Canaan, the land of Canaan. It's all going to be in that area. And then in chapters 37 through 50, everything will shift over to Egypt. So these three regions are important because these three regions are the same three regions that will be played out in the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament. All of the Old Testament will center in on these three areas. And what's interesting is every one of these geographies has the same storyline. God calls unto his people, calls them out. 
They disobey God. There is exile and captivity as a judgment. Then there is repentance. Then there is the forgiveness of God and the redemption of his people. And that plays out in cyclical movements through every one of these geographies. There's a storyline there. So there's a structure here, y'all. This isn't random. This is methodically thought out. I'm even gonna show you next week that even how the first six days are ordered, it was ordered in Hebrew so the whole thing could be memorized by God's people. Um, And so there's a unique structure that's laid out here. But I think for our purposes, I want you to understand thirdly, a general breakdown, not just the generations, not just the geography, but a general breakdown of the book. And I mentioned it earlier, but you have to understand Genesis is not meant to be a book that sits by itself on your bookshelf. It's part of a five volume set that has to be understood together. Uh, known as the Pentateuch, means five books, uh, also known as the books of Moses, also known as the Torah, the law of God. It's Genesis through um, Deuteronomy. And what's interesting is in those five books, the first two, Genesis and Exodus, they are gonna cover from the creation of the cosmos into God's people going through the promised land. And then the last three books, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is gonna zero in with a real tight focus to God's dealings with his people in the wilderness between the Exodus and the promised land. But they all go together. You can't read Genesis as a part. You have to read it as a whole when you read Genesis. But the general division of the book is this, two main divisions, chapters one through 11, chapters 12 through 50. That's how the book breaks down. One through 11, we'll call it the foundations And 12 through 50, we'll call it the fathers, the patriarchs, the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's promise is made to them. Another way to look at it is the planks, uh, kind of the foundational planks and the promises. That's how we're gonna break up. But maybe maybe even a better way to understand those two divisions, chapters is through the lens of family. Chapters one through 11 is gonna be a focus on the cosmic family that God has created. And then chapters 12 through 50 will zero in on the chosen family that God has pulled out for a specific purpose. One-fifth of Genesis focuses on that cosmic family, but four-fifths of Genesis focuses on that chosen family. And that's a real interesting disproportion because you and I, I don't think we would have written Genesis this way. Um, Understand this, one-fifth of Genesis will cover millennia four-fifths of Genesis will then focus in on 220 years. We're going to skip over thousands of years in 11 chapters, and then we're going to spend the next 39 focusing on just 220 years. Seems disproportionate. One-fifth of Genesis is going to focus on 20 generations of created people, and then the last four-fifths will only focus on about three generations. That's crazy disproportionate. There are more verses in Genesis given for Dinah and the Shechemites than there are for Adam and Eve. There are more verses given in Genesis for Judah and Tamar than the entire story of creation. Now that bothers us a little bit. We don't like that. That seems disproportionate because to us who are Westerners in a postmodern, post-enlightenment, naturalistic age, we tend to approach Genesis wanting more out of chapters one through 11 for our rationalistic age. And we're like, 12 through 50, boring. We want, give me more dinosaurs. Where do dinosaurs go into play here? Did Adam have a belly button? I really want to know. Why don't we, we hear that? 
Did the serpent really talk? Have you ever seen a snake talk? Give us more on that. How did that happen? And we want to know about the age of the earth. Was it six literal days or was it? We want to know where does this interact with evolution? And we have all these questions that are pent up for what is only one fifth of the book with four fifths dealing with something totally in a different range. And it's not that all those other questions are bad. It's not that those questions don't, certainly don't matter to us in the 21st century. Absolutely they do. And it's not that Genesis doesn't give us answers to those things because Genesis does. It's just that those weren't the primary things that Moses or God's people were dealing with or even debating or even needing 3,500 years ago. It's not the main storyline of Genesis. We're in a world today that pits the natural against the supernatural. Like it's the debate between science and creationism and that's the world we're in. But 3,500 years ago, it wasn't natural versus supernatural. It was supernatural versus supernatural. The question was how many gods made this place? That was the question that they were wrestling with. That was the origin stories of their day. And Moses is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to speak to that issue first and foremost with his people in that day. And again, we're gonna see Genesis speaks just as appropriately to our day as well. It's not silent, but it's not what it was obsessed with when it was written. That's why Genesis 1.1 doesn't begin with in the beginning they, or in the beginning them, or in the beginning us. No, it's in the beginning God. Genesis is first and foremost the story of God, the true eternal living God. So let's dive in. Y'all ready? One verse. I'm gonna tackle this in the next few minutes here. One verse. Do me a favor. I didn't do this in the nine. I should have. Will y'all stand? My goodness. Let's, this is gonna be the shortest stand sit that you've ever had. <laughs> one verse. Can we read this together? Genesis 1.1. It's not on the screen. Just if you got it in the Bible or if you've memorized it, fantastic. Read with me. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. Amen. You can sit down. God's word. Short verse, but one that Francis Schaeffer rightly said, probably the most important verse in the entire Bible. Maybe even the greatest thought that has ever been conceived. Kevin DeYoung said, these 10 words in English, maybe these seven words here in Hebrew, they aren't just an introduction to Genesis, even an introduction to the Bible. This is an introduction to everything. And in many ways, it may very well be the most important and essential sentence ever written. And in fact, I would argue you're not going to understand the rest of Scripture if you don't get this first verse. Before we can get to God as our Redeemer and Jesus Christ, we have to see him as God as creator or we'll never get there. We'll never have a framework for what's going on in the world around us without verse one. And so I want you to consider just the movement of each phrase in this verse. First of all, in the beginning, time begins right here. Time begins right here. And it's important to note this time stamp in the beginning, this is not in reference to God. God is not referring to God as the one who had a beginning. No, we're gonna infer from this verse and explain later, God had no beginning. God has always been. This timestamp is for us. We are the finite creatures that God created time for and we are bound by. 
there is a marker. There is a certain time and place in the point of history when God took what was not time and created time. And he did so for us right here. This is our timestamp. This is the origin of all that has been created. There is a beginning. And notice God, the prime force that brought this to be. God, in the beginning, God, an infinite, eternal being who preexisted outside of time and outside of creation. Nothing made him. There was never a time when God was not. He has always been. I don't know about you, even as a non-Christian when I was a kid, I was more or less a deist. I believe there was a God. And I'd heard this idea of God has always been. I couldn't, you try to think on that too long, your head explodes. You ever try to do that? Well, who created God? How did, how did he always be? Ah, you just go crazy. Because the truth is we're finite creatures. All we've ever known is a beginning and an end. Everything has a beginning and an end. And, and that's all we know. We can't fathom outside of our finite view that there's, there's pre-existent eternal nature in God who was not created but always existed. And we can't, comprehend, we can't comprehend the infinite in the midst of our finite. But the truth is, as we'll see in the coming verses, God has always existed and he's existed as a triune God, as Trinity, meaning three persons, one God. Now, this word Trinity is not in the Bible, but what we'll see is that um, this idea is made known right out of the gate that God, a singular God, exists in three persons where you see three who's and one what. And this idea will be progressively revealed throughout the rest of scripture. So for instance, in verse one, you see God as is God the Father, as he's portrayed throughout scripture, God the Father, the first who within the triune God who is doing the creating. By the time you get to verse two, you're gonna see God the Spirit who is hovering over the waters. We'll look at that next week. And then even in that, you'll see that when God creates, he speaks through his word. That word logos translated in Greek is all throughout the scriptures. And John again, will pick this up in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He came and made his dwelling among us. He, his name is Jesus. And so the third member of the Trinity, God the Son, is also present here in creation as well. Three who's, one what? One God existing in three persons. This would be unlike anything that the polytheistic cultures around them would have ever known. And that's why it's so important that Moses, through the inspiration of the Spirit, sets the record straight right here. This is not a pantheon of gods. There is only one God a singular God, and we see him here. One preexistent triune God who exists outside of time and space, yet created time for us so that he could interact with us who are bound by it. And notice the impetus of what he did. He created. He created. In the beginning, God created. God becomes the prime mover in this story. And he's totally, his creation is totally independent of anyone or anything else. Nobody coerced God to create. He didn't create because there's a need within him. Acts uh, 17 is going to tell us that God had no need to create. 
He simply chose to. And we're gonna see as it's progressively revealed throughout scripture, God does so, one, for his own glory, that the earth becomes the theater, the cosmos becomes the theater by which it demonstrates just a taste um, of his glory that we get to experience. And he created it out of his love for us. Not because he was lonely, not because he was in need of anything, but because out of the own goodness of who he is, he creates us to experience that glory. I've said it before. If I were to stand up here as a fallen, sinful human being like I am and beg you, plead with you, command you to worship me and enjoy my glory, uh, you better leave this place and leave this place quick. Go find another church to be part of. That's blasphemy. But when God, who is perfect, eternal, immutable, good, sovereign, holy, creates and invites us to worship him, that is only for our good. Our greatest good is found in his glory, found in his presence. It's the benevolence of God, the love of God that creates. But what's interesting, and you need to take note of this, is the word create. You're gonna see this over and over, um, not only in Genesis, but throughout scripture. In Hebrew, there's two common words for create. One is bahra, and the other is asah. Say that with me, bahra and asah. Fun to say, isn't it? So two words, bara means to create something out of nothing. Asa means to make something out of something. You and I, all we can ever know is asa, is to make something out of something. Any, be, any of the best creative minds and artists that are in here, whatever you're going to create, you're gonna use other physical elements to create it. That's all we know how to do. None of us can just speak the word. You're not gonna just say lunch today and lunch appears. Doesn't work that way. Something's gonna have to be made out of something. Bara is only used in scripture. Every time it's mentioned, it's only used of God. He's the only one that has the ability to create something out of nothing. And that's the word that's gonna be used over and over. And God does both. He both he, he, you're going to see that he both baras and he asas. He can do those simultaneously. But he baras. He creates out of nothing. He simply, we're going to see next week, he just says it and it appears. This is who God is. As humans, we can't do that. The Latin term that's used for this, create, is ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Moses is making it undeniably clear right here that God is the cause and everything around us, whether visible or invisible, that's the idea of heavens and earth, visible or invisible, that is the effect of God who is the one who caused it in his creating. In the ancient Eastern culture, when you talk about the heavens, ancient Eastern culture would view the heavens in three tiers. The sky right above us is the first heaven. The outer space above that, where the galaxies and the planets extend, that would be the second heaven. And then the third heaven would be that place that is the abode of the gods. That's how ancient culture viewed it. Well, Paul, when he writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 12, remember he said that he was caught up to the what? The third heaven. He was caught up to the abode of the God when he had his vision and when he was caught up there. When you're talking about the heavens here, that's what we're talking about. Everything that you can see right around you and what you can't even see. 
God's created. I don't care how far the Hubble telescope goes. You're looking at God's creation. He created it all. And the earth is well, the very physical material land upon which we live. God created it, as we'll see next week. Moses is speaking directly to a people who'd spent 400 years under pagan mythology about gods and origin stories. And he's letting them all know this is the God, the one God who created it all. And if by faith you and I are going to believe this verse to be true, and let me just say this right out of the gate. Now, I think you're going to see in the weeks to come, there is a lot of evidence for creation. There is a lot of evidence that will point us to creationism, to a creator. But at the end of the day, even if you disagree, whatever theory you come up with, you're going to have to have faith to believe it. There's not a single theory out there that has empirical proof that that's how it started. You're going to have to take it by faith. Um, Hebrews 11.3 tells us, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, you're going to have to believe verse one to be true. Now, again, I think there's evidence and I think it's reasonable and we're going to point to it. We're going to see it in the text that I don't think is incongruent with science. Um, But you're going to have to take it by faith. And likewise, the same way, secular atheistic evolution has to have just as much faith and arguably probably more faith. If you're going to believe, such as the Big Bang Theory proposes that chance and accidents are what started everything. And even when science can't even agree, science, their ultimate goal is try to get back to the origin, back to the origin, keep tracing back those layers. They still can't get to the original. How did something come from nothing? And all you got there is a theory that you're going to have to take by faith that's going to actually work against itself in science with the second law of thermodynamics or the idea of law of entropy that our world is moving towards uh, disintegration in many ways, moving towards disorientation, towards chaos, not towards order. And so therefore, if you reverse engineer that, that means there had to be a point when it started with an intentional order and nobody can get there of what it is. It's faith. You're going to have to have faith. One way or the other. You're going to have to have faith in the Big Bang or you're going to have faith in a big God. One way or the other. But please understand, I need you to know this as we go further into this. I am not a scientist, all right? We got some great ones in this body. You can go talk to George Damoff. I don't even know if he's in here. You can go talk to George, geologist, man. He's got an incredible mind. I'm not that. Just so you know what you're getting in this series, I got a general studies degree from the University of North Texas. It does not get any lower than that. There are associate's degrees that are better than that four-year degree. Uh, I'm pretty sure I have the lowest degree on our entire staff. So just so you know, um, I am no scientist here, but I know enough to know that that dog don't hunt. There is inconsistencies when you get outside of God. And so pick whatever your theory is, but you're going to have to have faith. But if you believe verse one to be true, then here's what I want you to tell you. A number of things are automatically going to get ruled out. If Genesis 1-1 is true, then atheism gets ruled out. The idea that there is no God, because we are told right out of the gate, there is a God who is creator. 
You're going to rule out agnosticism, the idea that there is a God, but he can't be known, but it's going to get ruled out and that God has spoken and he has declared that mankind is not without knowledge of him. All of his creation is going to testify to who he is. It's going to rule out dualism, the idea that there are equal and opposite forces working against each other at all times, the yin and the yang. Dualism gets ruled out in Genesis 1-1 because God solitarily has created all things with no equal, no opposite that is rivaling him. He is creator. He stands above all. Polytheism is going to get ruled out. The idea that there are multiple gods because there are no other gods that are present in verse 1. Just one. Pantheism, the idea that the universe is the manifestation of God, is ruled out because everything is not God. Instead, everything was made by God. Hylozoism, because I know you're asking. (laughs) The idea that all matter is eternal gets ruled out and that nature is not eternal because it had a beginning with a God who created it. Humanism, the idea that rational humanity is the highest standard that we can attain to, that gets ruled out as mankind is seen as created beings who are accountable to the eternal standard of God that was set forth before time. Animism, the idea that nature is inhabited by spirits gets ruled out and that nature is seen as as having its meaning in a supreme being and not through particular spirits. Panentheism, the idea that God is within the universe is ruled out and that God is perfectly above and beyond the ever-changing creation. Existentialism and moral relativism gets ruled out in Genesis 1.1. The idea that truth is found ultimately and subjectively in the autonomous self, that gets ruled out because truth is found in the unchanging nature of God and not in the opinion of God's creation. Not in the creature, but the creator. He alone has set the standard for meaning and existence when he created us. Secular evolution gets ruled out. The idea that earth and all life forms have gradually evolved on their own apart from a divine being gets ruled out as nature has its origin and its fixed design from a supreme intellect and not a mindless process. Y'all, any idea out there that is true, good, and beautiful has to begin with this phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Apart from that verse, anything else will not be true, good, and beautiful, will become errant, evil, and ugly when there is no God. The Bible is not the story of us. It is ultimately the story of God. And just like the Israelites of old, This was written so that you and I could know God, so that we can stand in awe, that we can be known by him. Get your head around that. This God wants to know us, wants to be involved with us and have a relationship with us so that we can utterly fall on our face and worship over God as creator and redeemer. That's the aim of Genesis. The problem is, starting in Genesis 3, as we'll see in a few weeks, is that sin has entered into the world, into the hearts of every human being, every man and woman, and has convinced us that maybe we're smarter than God. And if you want the best cultural commentary that has ever been written on the state of humanity today, as as we relate to God, you'll get none better than these words from Romans 1, verses 18 through 25. Listen to this. 
For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Remember from a Roman series, it's the idea of holding something down, like taking a beach ball in a swimming pool. It's not meant to go under the water. Whoop, just wants to keep doing that. This is what happens when you take the truth of God and you try to suppress it. You've got to force it down and go, that can't be, it's got to be something else. I'm smarter than him. And this is what creation have done. We've suppressed the truth for what can be known about God has been made plain to us because the God has shown it to us for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature. They have been clearly perceived. Just look around ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. You should be able to look at the creation and go, there's gotta be a creator. You should be able to look at the architecture and go, there's got to be an architect. You should be able to look at the canvas and go, there's got to be a painter. It has been clearly perceived so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and foolish hearts became darkened. Claiming to be wise, they actually became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, and birds and animals and creeping things. Notice the descent of what we worship. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Why? Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and they served the creature rather than the creator. Y'all, this is the commentary on our culture. We've taken Genesis 1-1 and we've tried to prove every way possible that that can't be true. But Genesis was written to lift our sights upward. Genesis was written so that we could behold God. First, before we behold him as redeemer, we have to behold him as creator. And all throughout scripture, it is this thought of the transcendent, eternal, immutable, sovereign creator that brings people to worship on their face. When you behold that this God stands enthroned above all and yet wants to know you. Listen to these passages, Psalm 33, six through nine. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in all of him. That's what we're supposed to come away with in Genesis, stand in all of him. Why? Because he spoke and it came to be. He spoke and it came to be, he commanded, it stood firm. Psalm 95, verse six. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, who? Our maker. Psalm 148, five through six. Let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created. He established them forever and ever. He gave a decree and it shall not pass away. And you know what the last scene, Revelation 4, when all of us who've been redeemed by Jesus are standing around the throne, worshiping God, you know what we're worshiping for? 411, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? Because you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. J.I. Packer said it best. You've seen the sea, right? 
You've seen the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. You've watched the birds and the fish. You've observed the landscape and the vegetation and the animals and the insects and all the big things and all the little things together, right? You've marveled at the wonderful complexity of human beings with all their powers and skills and the deep feelings of fascination, attraction, and affection that men and women arouse in each other. You've seen it all. It's fantastic, isn't it? Well, now meet the one who's behind it all. Or as Jonathan Woodley was saying in our teaching team the other day, y'all, you have heard the music your whole life. It's now time to meet the composer. You've been looking at his paintings your entire life. It's time to meet the artist. You have read the book your entire life. It's time to meet the author. You have experienced the creation. It is time now to experience the creator. Welcome to Genesis. Next week, we're gonna talk about how it was all made. Y'all gotta come back, all right? Let's pray. Father, we worship you. You are enthroned on high. You are the creator of everything, visible and invisible. And oh God, because of our sinfulness, we have rebelled against you. We have exchanged the truth of you for a lie. We have worshiped the creation rather than the creator. Oh Lord, forgive us. And God, I think about Psalm 8. Who am I as a mere man that you would be mindful of me? That in all the advance, uh, uh, expanse of the heavens, the infinite glory that is in the creation around us that shows us how big you are, how sovereign you are, how, how eternal you are, that you would care for us that you would create time and space and this planet, breathe life into us from the dust, simply so we could behold your glory, so we could enjoy relationship with you. Not because you are in need of anything, but because of that's how benevolent and loving you are. Oh God, may we rightly worship you. May we tell of your glories the same way that the creation does. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. And would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.